Hello and welcome to this special edition of Arena, coming to you live from the Glen Centre in Manor Hamilton in the lovely county of Leitrim. <laughs> have to say, as I, as I was driving up today, um, I've, I've, and I've been struck by the beauty of this county on many occasions before, but I came in today through, I came over from Black Lion, so I came in through uh, Glen Farn was where I entered the county of Leitrim, which I know is kind of north Leitrim, but we better get this one out of the way the extraordinary drama of the mountains that kind of greet you in, in North Leitrim on both sides of the road as I was driving through to Manor Hamilton. Now, as a Monaghan man, I do really appreciate the drumlins of South Leitrim as well, so let us keep the whole county happy uh, by saying that. It, it is very easy to see why people come here. It's very easy to see why they come back here, and it certainly is very easy to see why people stay here. This evening, for this Arena Culture Night special, we'll explore the best of the arts and culture in the county and its hinterland. we look at what makes it such a special place for artists and those of a creative bent to live in and to work from. We'll talk film, literature, publishing, and, oh yes, we will even have a little bit of dancing on the radio this evening, more of that anon. But first to the Adaptation Film Festival, which takes place in Manor Hamilton this very weekend. Festival explores the connections between literature and cinema taking an in-depth look at films that started out as books. Two Irish stars taking part in the festival are with me this evening. Tony and BAFTA award-winning actor Brian F. O'Byrne will be launching the festival this very evening. Brian has won acclaim for his roles in Love, Hate, Mildred Pierce and Little Boy Blue. And Gary Lydon is with us as well, multi-IFTA award winner for his work on The Clinic and more recently in the global hit The Banshees of Inisherin and the resonant and understated feature film Lakelands. Gary will be giving a masterclass in screen acting this weekend. But before all these awards were won, these two men appeared in the celebrated 1998 television adaptation of Amongst Women, based on the 1990 novel of John McGahern, a man we will discuss at length later, and, and Brian and Gary. In fact, Brian, I heard the both of you talking about that Amongst Women. You've great memories of it from, from what you were saying before we came to where, being there with Gary. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I guess there wasn't an awful lot of outside television being done in Ireland at the time, and I was in America, I'd come back, I think, to do it. It's quite a long time ago, is it, Gary? How, yeah. It was, 1998, yeah. I think it was around that time, yeah, because I, I like to do the, the uh, master class. I was, you know, doing a bit of research, and just yesterday I was looking at myself and Brian. I think Brian is aged a lot better than me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, You're in trouble if that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> Gary. No. Well, if you, no, if you could see us. But, but, uh, <laughs> no, because I, I remember I had a big quiff. I played uh, um, Mark, the fellow from Wexford, you know, who's... Uh, not not a great husband to be for uh, Susan Lynch's character, you know. You know, it was really, it was really just when I was watching, I was thinking how proud I was, like, to mm. be, at the time, to be involved in something like that, you know. And with, of course, with the great Tony Doyle as well, yeah. the, the actor, you know. Yeah, and of course, doing a McGarren, a, a book that's just a spectacular book. You know what yeah. I mean? To be involved in something like that, and to, you know, the central characters are the daughters as well, which is, you know, at yeah. the time, was a, a great bunch of of uh, young actors that were just uh, kind of extraordinary, starting off in their careers that had an energy about. It, mm. And it played into that um, youthful ebullience within the book, actually, you know. And so, and we're down the west of Ireland as well, where we yeah. shot it down in Westport. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really nice time. Happy memories of that time. And you mentioned the book there, Brian. And I'm wondering when it comes to an adaptation, you mightn't remember. Uh, or possibly you do remember, did you get stuck into the book of Amongst Women at the time? Uh, when it comes to adaptations, do you do that? Do you go right back to the source yeah, material? Yeah, of course, yeah, because, you know, you want to, you, you want to, you want to, justify your wage <laughs> you want to say <laughs> listen I've done some work I've, I've actually you know I haven't just sailed in here so yeah no if there's it's a great resource actually you know because you can kind of then really talk with whoever the creatives are particularly the writer or the director and go you know what there's a I like the script and this is all very good but maybe there's some other shade that this is in the book and maybe we could bring that in I think we're missing a beat here and so it's a you, you in some ways you have more ammunition to go in as a creative, for, as a, if you're an actor. Mm. Because often, as you know from your distinguished acting career, um, that you just get the script and you say mm. the words. Some people just 
want us to turn up like that, you know, yeah. which is valid point as well. But certainly, if if uh, with an adaptation, we can come in with the the book in our hip yeah. pocket and go, you know what? I think there might be something else here. And in, in the interest of full disclosure, we should point out, Brian, that you and I did play the same part at one point. We did, and it's. Well, it's it's a touchy subject for me, uh, Sean. Which we haven't seen each other in probably thirty years. But um, I was uh, we I originated a role of a Tom McIntyre play called Good Evening, Mr. Collins, which was put on the Peacock Theatre, and uh, it was my first time. Well, it's my only time I ever worked in the Abbey, and. Uh, we finished the run and uh, I went away. I, I was living in New America at the time and I came back. The play was brought back um, due to its success and obviously the person playing Collins uh, was wonderful in the first production. And then it came back and Sean was cast uh, in his acting days in the part. And when I came back to uh, Dublin, I guess a year later or something, I went into the Abbey Theatre and a huge walled-ceiling picture of... The character of Collins was in the lobby of the Abbey, not just downstairs in, in the Peacock, but in the Abbey of Sean Rocks <laughs> playing the part. So I've. You've let go I of that. When I hear Arena come on every day, I turn it off and I, shout <laughs> the, I go, that fella. So he still hasn't let it go. No, yeah, I yeah. And I'm happy that this Arena is do, uh, going so well for you, Sean, that you won't be taking any more jobs from <laughs> Oh, yeah, well, uh, let's, let's just balance things up. I had one picture in the Abbey. I don't have five Tony nominations. I don't have a Tony Award. I don't have a Primetime Emmy nomination uh, and all of the other awards. So I think you maybe have me on that well, one, Brian. No, when it comes to, you know, in Ireland, and up around Manon and Cavan, you're the winner, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Gary, in terms of adaptation, what, what Brian was saying there, w would you be in the same boat uh, in, in that regard? Get back to the source material and have a look at it. You, you, yeah. you may remember that with Amongst Women. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, well, the character, Mark, he's, he's not in it that much, but I remember getting the book and scouring through and taking any kind of little sentence, mm. you know, and kind of running with it. Yeah, no, he's, he's truly loving it with a book like that as well. I mean, it's, uh, no, you definitely do. It's, um, you know, it's like having the, you know, no, really good notes about mm. your character. And, it's, you know, um, it's, it's vital, really, you know. Yeah, and you've had that recently too, Brian, in terms of both Conclave, uh, the, the television, not the television series of the Robert Harris. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, it's a movie. A movie, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We shot it um, in Rome at the beginning of the first few months of this year. And it is adapted by... Peter Strawn, I think, is Peter, Peter's name, mm. who did, uh, Adab he nominated for an Oscar for um, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. And also, actually, before Christmas, I worked with a, another uh, wonderful Leitrim filmmaker, um, Marion Quinn, um, and her brother, Declan Quinn, the cinematographer, did an adaptation of Antigone. Uh, called Twig that we shot um, in Dublin with a host of wonderful young Irish actors. Uh, Antigone played by this, I think, not only is she an incredibly talented young lady, but has the best name ever. Her name is Sade Malone. And um, she's a, a wonderful actor. So um, that's another adaptation as yeah. well. And, and Lisa Tadeo's uh, book, I think and you had read this book. Um, this is um, Three Women. Yeah. You, you had read the book and were hugely excited about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I did. Uh, Lisa Tadeo wrote a, a book called Three Women, which I found an extra extraordinary book. I happened to know her beforehand. And out of the, out of the blue... Myself and my wife, Heather Goldenhurst, who's, who's also an actor, um, we got asked to play parts in a Showtime series that we shot last year in New York. So, yeah, so actually the, the past year has all been adaptations and um, all, all very different. Obviously, if mm. you look at the Greek, if you're looking at that, that's been adapted so many, yeah. so many times. And, and you can really have a strong take on it, as Marion did. And then Lisa was there to, as a writer, was a producer on the show, so she got to really mold the script herself for for three women, which is uh, the um, and of course the uh, Robert Norris, uh, or Robert Harris uh, novel Conclave was probably easier to adapt because it's just one novel rather than making yeah. four or five hours of TV from a book, and it was just a, a simpler. Some things are 
perhaps easier to adapt. And, and you're, you, you're doing this masterclass as part of the, the festival as well, Gary. Yeah. You're, going, you're going to talk about um, screen acting, I, yeah. I guess, is going to be the, the focus here. You, you, you're going to talk specifically about a role you had in the last September. This is adapted from the Elizabeth uh, Bowen novel. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that film and, and how the Bowen novel helped you through that. Yeah, well, I suppose with Elizabeth Bowen, she was from, you know, the the Anglo-Irish. Um, mm. So it was kind of, my, my character was like a volunteer, you know, who's um, in trouble, you know. And uh, so I think, like, it was, the, the, that book was invaluable in terms of uh, getting the background of, of her, where she was coming from, do you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, it was quite a long time ago, so, yeah. you know, the old memory wouldn't be great, you know, but, I mean, there's a great cast in that, you know, like um, Maggie Smith was in it, you know, Jane Birkin was in that as well, you know. But, yeah, no, she, she's, yeah, no, I, I remember just um, trying to, you know, just, just trying to find, you know, the, because it was set during the War of Independence, yeah. you know, and just trying to find the, uh, what was going on with the character at that time. Yeah, and I suppose you, you do get a lot more material than possibly you get in a, in a screenplay where you might have, you know, he, he sits at table yeah. and, and there may even be no words for the character in, in, in a screen situation. So that yeah. kind of background would help enormously. It does as well, yeah. That, like as Brian was saying, like it's, it, it, it colours in things that you mm. wouldn't have so much on the on just on the script, you know. Yeah, and you, it's not as if either of you haven't been in original work as well. You know, it's not all adaptations. <laughs> but uh, I suppose the Banshees of Inisher and you're a pretty, a pretty nasty bit of work. And yeah, that, yeah, but, yeah. That's that's not an adaptation. Well, no, they, that's what I'm saying. It's not yeah. all adaptations. Yeah, but that, they, did, they did. People were saying that it was it was it was it was a, a play, play of yeah. Martin's. Yeah, but I don't think it was. I think it was just a title. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and, and and of course Lakelands, which is set in and around this part of the world, really. Isn't yeah, it? The recent film with Ian Hardwick. Wonderful film. Yeah, not far from here. Yeah, um, Granard, the, lad, the two lads are from Granard, you know, mm. so they're sort of up around this neck of the woods. You know, it was great to be involved in a, f you know, with um, young up and coming, you know, p you know, director, they're, they're co-directors, co-writers, directors, yeah. and they're young and, you know, enthusiastic. Yes, you know, and it's yeah. great just to, yeah, because I, I did that straight after Banshee, so it was kind of good to get the, the difference between saying a big production and then, you know, something that's, you know, lower budget, but still, you know, the great, great guys. Yeah. Those, you know. Of course, you have a, a long history with Martin McDonough, particularly in the theatre side of things, Brian. Yeah, well, I have a long history. It, it was a long time ago. Yeah. He, he got rid of me and got Gary on for his films. <laughs> the theatre, I think, is what happened. Um, yeah, no, I was in uh, his first three plays mm. and, uh, yeah, kind of changed my life, really. Um, <coughs> yeah, we took them all around the world and got to see uh, the world uh, kind of discover Martin. And like we were here in Ireland first, where and then we, we, the Beauty Queen was the first one we did, and we, we did it here in Ireland, and then we went to London, and then we went to Australia, and then took it, and we played it on Broadway for a year, m maybe a year yeah, and a half. Yeah, those plays were such huge successes at the time, really, weren't they? Yeah, they w they were. And it's very interesting watching it from a distance, because it's a long time ago as well now, of course. Um, we did them, and people discovered this new writer, Martin McDonough, and it was you know hugely exciting to go around. We were all young, and there was a whole group of us, and uh, we, we had a, a wild, great time doing them. And then he did a, his first play, uh, which wasn't Irish, called Pillow Man. Mm. And so a bunch of people in New York, particularly in New York, discovered, oh, this is a new guy, Martin McDonough, who didn't do, who wouldn't have gone to see an Irish play. So it was a new audience. Yeah. And then he goes and does a movie, he does his In Bruges, which explodes the audience again, and as people who haven't mm. seen uh, who don't go to theatre go, oh, who's this guy, Martin McDonough? It's, uh, you know, he's doing yeah. this film. And so there's been this great uh, uh, revelation of, of his writing. Yeah, and of course, like like everything, an overnight success after 25 years of hard <laughs> yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind yeah. Of, kind Although of he was kind of different because he had yeah. he had all those plays written before the first one was done. So he did Beauty Queen in, in, um, in Druid and they asked him, do you have any other plays? And he was like, uh, yeah. And he took, and them he out took out five, four or five plays. <laughs> Under the and moment. he just put them down on the thing, yeah. you know? And I was like, oh. 
Um, you're both living up this part of the world now as well, which is quite interesting that you, you can manage that. Things at the moment, um, Brian, we were talking before we came to where to the strike, obviously, you, you can't work in America, but can you work here? Is that, yeah, is technically it? I can, but uh, I can work in, uh, in, I can work anywhere, anywhere other than a SAG. So SAG is our, uh, is Screen Actors Union in the United States and uh, of which I'm a member. So our union is, we're on strike at the moment, so SAG productions can't uh, take place. And I've been waiting to start a, sh a show in um, Canada. Yeah, and uh, people who are listening will not see the very fine beard you were sporting. I have a huge long beard. However, there's a person in the audience in front of me who has an even bigger long beard. <laughs> and, and we're both wearing grey iron sweaters as well. So it's just a look down here. In this you part better of the check world. with them wh wh when his flight to Calgary is. It was due to, due to shoot in Calgary. Will uh, this happen, do you think? Will it happen? Yeah, uh, yeah we, uh, of course it'll happen. Yeah, I don't know when. Mm. If anything, the, the strike hopefully will uh, finish. Yeah. And had, had you any sense of it affecting stuff here, Gary, at home in, in Ireland? Uh, not at the moment. I'm, I'm doing The Hangman in the Gaiety. This is a, another Martin McDonough play. Yeah, yeah, just to get the plug in there, starting <laughs> in the middle of October, just for two and a half weeks. But So obviously it doesn't affect that, but um, I, I, I'm not a member of a SAG, so, I, you know, I can, you know, nip in there and, you know. <laughs> Take his parts on him. No, you will scabs, not. <laughs> scabs, scabs, scabs. <laughs> Listen, um, you will be out on the streets afterwards, Brian, um, to open the uh, the Adaptations Festival. The big, the Jimmy's Hall, which was a film you were in 10 years ago, is it now? Yeah, 10 years ago. Yeah, the fantastic time, uh, a fantastic time up here in Sligo, Ken Loach doing it and um, and Leitrim, of course. We said we're, I was just based in Sligo. Um and we shot it all around Leitrim. It was, it was a wonderful experience and actually uh, kind of really got part of the reason uh, it got me coming back to live from, I moved from Los Angeles to, to Sligo, which is, uh, yeah. So it, it kind yep. of changed, changed a lot of things for me. But we opened it, uh, Johnny Gogan, the wonderful Johnny Gogan. I sh shot two films with him, one down here in, in Leitrim before. And uh, it's uh, presented by uh, his company, Band of Films, and it's a, a weekend of wonderful workshops like with some with distinguished guests like, like uh, Gary here. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating program he's put together. If you're in the neighborhood, call over. And if you are in the neighborhood at eight o'clock this evening, it's going to be the screening is out on the main street. They've moved it to a bigger venue with a bigger screen so that more people can attend. You people sitting out there don't go anywhere until 8 o'clock. You can go then, <laughs> not before that. In the meantime, thanks very much to Gary Lydon and Brian F. O'Byrne. And so to, uh, to further performers who are with us here in Manor Hamilton this evening, delighted to be joined by the Piper John Tuhi and the Shan Nolts dancer and choreographer Edwina Gucky and a proud Leitrim woman and winner of the Gratham Kyol last year. It was you who put me wise to the North Leitrim, South Leitrim thing, Edwina. So where do you sit on that particular... What part of the fence are you sitting on? Uh, I'm firmly buried in the drumlins in South Leitrim. All right, OK. Yeah. So you're closer to the Monaghan. That's fine. That's absolutely perfect. So um, your, your career as an author is about to start, Edwina. You might explain to us about your book, Sparks from the Flagstone. Sparks from the Flagstones. Yes, it's a book of traditions and calendar customs for children. Things that I grew up with. Mm. that I guess I didn't appreciate from my four grandparents and my parents until I was older and realised that not everybody else grew up this way. So I thought it would be great to document them for children and to empower them to be able to carry them on. Now, most people will know you as a, as a dancer and as a choreographer. Was there, where was that in your, in your upbringing? Was there dancing in the house all the time? Was there music in the house all the time? Or where did that come from? Yeah, it was just... I guess like many dancers and musicians across Ireland, it's just a part of life, a way of life. Everybody was playing music and mm. singing and dancing and it was the same at home. You learned to walk and talk and lilt a tune and dance a few steps. And uh, you, you, uh, people are going to see them when you come out front. I, I, I'll get you, I have to get you to tell the story now and people can say wow when they see them. The shoes you are, have on are quite extraordinary. I was expecting these, you know, oh yeah, this Irish dancing dark black shoes. Where do you see them? So tell us about the shoes that you're wearing. <laughs> exactly. Most people just wear normal black dancing shoes, but I, I like to feel happy and content and pretty in my shoes. So I find pairs that I, I like. So you buy shoes that you want I first. I just buy shoes, normal yeah. shoes, and then I get them adjusted to sound how I want to, to sound. So all sorts of 
trials and experiments of gluing on bits of timber and carbon fibre onto them. Yeah, so I'm sure John Tuhi, who's a piper sitting beside you there, could tell me all about uh, how pipes are made. But I never knew that dancers were so fussy about how their shoes are made. Who does that for you? I have a great friend, Charlie Purpoil, who's an amazing artist that puts them together mm. for me. Tell me a little bit about, you were also telling me about your, your local Townlands project, uh, 21, 21 Doors. Yes, a mock to the field. It's launching on the 2nd of October. And it's basically travelling around myself and artist Natalia Bayliss and a wonderful organic farmer, John Matthews. The three of us are travelling around interviewing farmers, 21 Townlands, and they're telling us the story of their townland through history, culture, heritage, and just the people that were once there and are there today. And uh, what, where do the doors fit into the story? So there's 21 doors and the door comes from the townland. So it might be from an old house that once stood there or a door that has been used in a cow shed today. And the door stands in the townland. And, and then for October, the locations of those 21 doors will go up online. It'll be open to the public. The doors are open to the public to <laughs> visit. And they're just standing in fields in that townland. And on the door will be a phone number and you ring that phone number. And on the other end, it will be the farmer telling you about that townland. What a wonderful way to hear the story of a place. So the number will be on, on, on the door to tell us to tell you that. And, and you might also tell me a little bit about the Ardosa Culture Club. What's involved there? Yes, we're our, it's our 20th year of the Culture Club. It's for children and adults. And uh, it's basically when people ask me what it is, I try to describe it as imagine a, a big bucket of Irish music, song, dance, folklore, language, culture. And we dip children in them and they come out culturized. And it's non-competitive and it's just a space for people to come together like our ancestors did. You know, yeah. they'd go to the local crossroads or hall and have crack together. And this is what it is for children. Yeah. And, and sometimes when we hear those words, arts and culture, they have big capital letters all around them. But having the crack is really what we're, what we're talking <laughs> exactly. about, isn't it? For children for, uh, especially. Yeah. Now, you, you, you might make your way out to the front and people can and be amazed at these wonderful shoes that we're about to see. I think they're very fashionable. John, you're going to play, you're going to play a piece for uh, Edwina. What are we going to hear as Edwina dances in these wonderful brown suede shoes that she has? Uh, we'll uh, maybe just chance a couple of reels. So the first is a tune called the Calaval Fancy. Uh, it's a Sligo tune that would be very much associated with the Sligo fiddle playing tradition. Uh, and then the second tune is called Garrett Barry's Reel. So okay. here we go. Shoes to the ready and pipes to the ready. The feet and shoes of Edwina Gucky and the pipes of John Tui. Back with more from the Glen Centre in Leitrim after this break. And welcome back to this Culture Night special from the Glen Centre in County Leitrim. Earlier this year, we marked 60 years since the publication of John McGahern's first novel, The Barracks. The book bought him instant critical acclaim. 
And it also brought him, uh, it was a statement of intent without any doubt, the first step in a literary career which brought him personal highs and, of course, lows, a career which would see him, when all is said and done, considered as most one of the most important Irish novelists of his generation. McGattern was born in Dublin, grew up in rural Leitrim, where his father was a guard. Uh, throughout his writing life, he dipped into the rich well of childhood memory, leaving a body of work which can count among the, his achievements the preserving and commemoration of his beloved home county and its hinterland. Joining me to talk, among other things, about the deep connection McGahern had to Leitrim and its landscape is writer Brian Layden and screenwriter Eamon Little, who co-wrote uh, co a new feature film adaptation of McGahern's first novel, That They May Face the Rising Sun. Uh, the film will be released next month. Brian, I suppose you're from Arigna, I think, originally in, in County Roscommon. You now live in, in Sligo, and we're talking about McGahern and Leitrim. What about this, the whole idea of the potential isolation of counties like, like Leitrim, Sligo, Roscommon, how useful that is or otherwise to the, to the writer? Yes, it's a good question, Sean, and it's lovely to be here in the Glens because we see it's a useful space in terms of uh, creativity in Leitrim. People find a cheap place to live, which was very important to John McGahern because he'd been kind of ostracised by the society after the barracks and particularly after the dark. He just he, There was a necessity to live somewhere and um, there is that first priority uh, is to keep your overheads low when you're mm. a writer. Uh, the other thing then was that, of course, he is a Leitrim man. He was, it was a homecoming mm. for him. His mother was from Slevenirn and she was a teacher and um, his father was a cavern man. He had that rural um, connectedness anyway. And he had a natural inclination and attraction to the rural way of life, which would be church-going, small farming and decent inclinations. <laughs> and it, but, you know, you, you mentioned, I, I'm saying this thing about the isolated writer, but we also have to remember he was a farmer and the farming, uh, certainly in the early part, was as important in his career or in his, in his life as his writing career was. Oh, I think it was. And McGarren writes beautifully about, um, you know, his enjoyment of a, a quiet pint in Luke Early's pub on the corner in Mohol and the bundles of cabbage plants for sale on the corner there in the springtime. And, you know, the locals would watch him carefully because they knew his work, knew his reputation by the time he rehoused re himself at Laura Lake there in Foxfield mm. in Leitrim. And he... Um, you know, they would say, well, he's sold off the cattle. He must be writing another dirty book. <laughs> and he, you know, he, he rose to that in a way because, OK, you have the barracks, as you say, which announces his arrival. You have the dark, which is a dark story and, and very diffidently and with great courtesy, as is his trademarks, he, he, he alludes to the abuse and the darkness in the, within the country. The book is ostracised, he's ostracised, and it said, for pornographic depravity, when yeah. the depravity was within the church itself. And, it's uh, and, and when you think about that book um, in yeah. the 1960s, you know, that it was one of the first pieces of literature to really call out clerical abuse. How, to what extent was that, you know, what caused him such trouble from the authorities, both religious and secular? Yes, it was a big thing to have your book actually officially banned. And then he married a Scandinavian lady and he was told, you know, well, that, that compounds the offence of betrayal. Um, and to, mar to marry outside to the marry tribe. To marry outside the tribe as such. And indeed, yeah. there would be people who said, when we talk about the farming community and the support, when he turned to write in his books, you know, he, he let us down because he did observe people very closely. Uh, but he was actually exposing in a very very careful, measured manner. Mm. And now he did rewrite the leave-taking. He thought maybe he, he got the first version wrong in the next novel. And then he responded to all of that as the truth-teller by writing a very experimental novel called The Pornographer. And The Pornographer actually addresses this thing. It's not pornography that's in the book. It might be called a racy story mm. that one person is writing. And that's then balanced with the story of the actual couple taken like a 
boating trip on the Shannon. So he's nearly responding to the critics that he's that he's writing dirty books. He is not, you know. Yeah. He, he's doing a very measured exercise in truth telling. And Eamon Little, Brian has touched on it there. He talked about the balance in the pornographer itself. But if you think about the balance within his work in general, you know, there's such a very clear, absolute love, respect, adoration of, of the countryside, of the land in which he's living, the landscape in which he's living. Now, you've, you've made documentaries around John McGarren's work as well as this uh, film that we talk about. To what extent, and you, you knew him, how important was that sense of place to him? Well, first of all, I didn't make the documentary, but John McGahern, I recorded on it. All right, it okay. was a Pat Collins uh, yeah. film. Um, but I was there for it all. And um, yeah, what I think about John McGahern is that he, he was a very careful uh, observer of people and place and so on. But, you know, if he had been born in Wexford or Limerick, he would have been just as uh, acutely mm. close to... to what he was observing there. So, uh, you know, the extent to which Leitrim might have shaped him, I'm not so sure, you know. But there's, is, is, do you doubt that there's, I mean, when I read the books and when I think of reading the books, Leitrim jumps off the pages at me. There's no doubting his love of the place. Yeah. Well, and you know that the, after his mother died, he moved to Roscommon. So mm. he lived... And he did live in Connemara for a while as well, didn't he? Very briefly. Yeah. Well, for a year or two. But he... he um, so the sort of first part of his childhood, he grew up in Leitrim uh, with his mother mostly and his siblings because his father was away in Coote, Coote uh, Hall uh, in County Roscommon. So he, um, yeah, he observed everything with minute detail. I mean, you know, he wrote stories from Spain, stories mm. from Dublin. You know, he's not very, he's not a completely a, a, a rural a writer by any means at all. He's very cosmopolitan. And there's no question, but he is an international writer in that respect. In that respect, Brian Lydon, he he had hu he was respected hugely internationally. Yes, uh, in, in that sense, he bears a resemblance to maybe Seamus Heaney in that. Mm. A huge amount of the imaginative work is based within a few miles of where he grew up, either the barracks, as you say, in Cotal there, Eamon, or, or Leitrim. But at the same time, there's this enormous uh, dimension. He said, you know, um, the universal is the local with the walls taken away um, by absolute fidelity to, as you were saying, that close, keen observation, absolute fidelity to the local, wherever it be, mm. that becomes universal, that becomes recognisable to anyone in France or Italy or Spain. You capture the mores and the way people are so precisely. I mean, there's a story told that uh, one lady didn't actually know her barman husband was back on the drink until she read the <laughs> McGarren short story. And there's that beautiful description of him watching the optic, measuring the, throwing back the quiet, discreet shot and watching uh, the wife's uh, passage like you would a cloud across the sky and its reflection in water. So and, yeah. and the, yeah, that kind of comparison with the realities of life and the landscape is, is always very striking. There's a kind of a, a poetic nature to it. And, and in that they may face the rising sun. Uh, I, I, mean, I think we get a novel that isn't driven by plot at all. It's driven by is, is atmosphere, really, that he that he's giving us or what is it? Yeah, it's, it's hard to put a, a finger on it exactly, but he's he's giving an insight, I think, into a community. Uh, and how they are as characters, how they are with each other, how they are with the passing of time, how they are with the natural world. Um, and he does have uh, narratives in it. You know, there are, there mm. are storylines within it, but they're not, uh, the, the, the book doesn't depend on them. And what, what kind of challenges or, or advantages did that present then when it came to adapting it for the screen? Yeah, well, it, it was a difficult thing. And Pat Collins, the director, when he first uh, asked me to get involved, he said that he was thinking of taking it on because of how impossible it was. <laughs> you know, because it's very different to the kind of film where you have a very strong and clear character arc uh, in, in that they may face the rising sun. You meet all these characters who live around a lake and you see them through the eyes of these people called the Rutledges, a couple, and we don't learn a whole lot about the Rutledges, or at least in terms of their development, you know, they don't really have much of an arc. 
So he used to, he, he referred to them as being like a Greek chorus. And you, you kind of, they're, they're the, the rest of the community is mediated through them to us. Um, so to make a film out of that, that, that was tricky in the sense that you couldn't really continue to have the Rutledges as just a kind of a lens out mm. through which you look at the world. They, are, they have to be characters. And they have to be the kind of characters that we're interested in and that we're, um, we go with on whatever journey they're on. Now, it's not a journey in terms of plot. It's a different kind of a journey. Yeah. So whatever, you know, a lot of films re rely on plot to keep the tension the tension by which I mean the thing that keeps you sitting in your seat watching it. What's going to happen next? But in this film, and, in, and you know, it's not the only film like this, it's a, it's a slow cinema mm. thing, but it's, there are other elements which keep you in your seat. Um, the storylines that are in it are not there, you know, in the sense of A follows B follows C, and if B doesn't happen, then C is You're lost, or yeah. anything like that. It's uh, more that they throw light on the characters and on their situations and on their challenges and on their joys and on them as individuals and as a community. And as Eamon is describing that there, Brian, you get a sense of just how modern a writer <laughs> we're talking about, even though we are talking about the mid-20th century, essentially, as the, as the period of when he was, when McGarren was at, at his most active. How modern are they? Because you know, you, you, when you think of the stories of the barracks and the, maybe those more plot-driven stories uh, of, of those novels and even amongst women, which were very close to his own life, in fact, uh, that he was telling there, when you think of those, it's, it's easy to put them back in the past. What's the way into that for a, for a modern reader, a book like The Barracks that's 60 years old this year? Well, well I, think that, I, I think he has this great resonance for the contemporary world, um, in, in McGahern. Let's just say we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the birth of the state. Mm. If you take what you were chatting about earlier amongst women, there's Moran whose disappointment at how the state has turned out. He'd throw the pension back in their teeth, he said. The wrong people took over afterwards, you know. And that's still a very pertinent message to us. If you think of what Connolly and people had in mind for Ireland and what we have today. Um, so there's that. But I think as well, there's, there's two almost a great movement in the latter half of his career towards a deeper sensitivity. Let's take that they may face the rising sun and mm. memoir too, um, where nature, and he is inspired and always was by the early Irish nature poets. And nature becomes a very important force. The memoir is almost like a mass for his mother, made up of a litany of recitations of revisiting the little lanes, he says, that flow like streams towards a river. And the river meets at the lake in that they may face the rising sun, which is a character as powerful in itself in the story around which the community has to organise itself. And that is a very topical message for us now about getting more in step, as Edwina was even talking about, yeah. with nature and with culture and with society. And, you know, the, the, the governing force in the latter McGahern, he said, really, there's only so much you can do with the day. And the true measure of being alive is between sunrise and sunset. Um, and that is how we know mm. and experience uh, being alive, by the unit of the day. Well, it's a bit like, uh, to, to pick up on what Eamon was saying, just uh, like the, the, the very local can become the very universal, the day can become eternity in some ways. It can, be, uh, it can be signify something bigger. You mentioned, you mentioned Edwina there, and just as we're finishing up, separately from all of this, mm -hmm. you found it, um, Leapus Print, I did in, indeed. In, in, in 2021. Edwina's book is going to be published by you. Uh, Edwina is going to be title number six. I'm mm. launching my own book, and Edwina was to launch with us in, um, on the 8th of October, and uh, we have an indie afternoon. But it is a fabulous book. It's, it requires a great deal of art. So we're going to actually preview the book at our launch on the 8th in the mm. Hawkswell, and then we're going, to re we're going to have a proper launch. Actually, do you know what she's a perfect fit for? St. Bridget's Day. That's when we're going All to, or right, Bridget's right. Day, yeah, I should that, call that, it. That, 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 That's that sounds, when we'll be seeing her. Sounds like a good plan. How difficult is it to have, um, and, you know, because you started up during pandemic, holding a, a publishing house like that in, in the Northwest? What are the challenges for you? Well, we're back where we started about, say, where do you move to and how do you make your living here? Mm. And we, we decided that an indie imprint was 
would have it very firmly rooted and an identity in the region with a cross-border dimension to it. Thought there was a niche there. We'd worked so long with magazine publishing like Force 10 and Flaming Arrows and there's the Cormorant and that, but there was no publisher. There's a logjam of work that needs. And I'm just taking a lesson from the music industry. You really, you're going to, if you, if you want an organic publishing experience, you've got to manage it yourself. Take it away from the, the more corporate thing and exercise control over quality and the ethics of the mm -hmm. imprint. So that's, that's, we hope will be a quality ethical imprint and that's the aim. Of well, that, that sounds like a good, a good aim to me. And you, just briefly, Eamon, you have another you're in the, uh, are you in the process of another McGahern ad adaptation or is it about to start? I'm not. Well, I have been before this one. I, I did um, worked on an adaptation of The Pornographer, but uh, it wasn't very timely with Me Too and all that. The climate wouldn't have been right for it. Right. Okay. But, so but this film that they may face the rising sun, just to let you know, is going to have its world premiere in the London Film Festival on October 8th and on the 9th it'll be screened as well. And hopefully will be on general release later in, in the year in Ireland in the well early, I think early more in, in the spring I'd say well be to coincide with the publication of Edwina's book it sounds, like, <laughs> it sounds like that that's a Brian Layden and Eamon Little there Brian's new novel Love These Days will be launched at the Hawkswell Theatre as as he was telling us there two p.m. on Sunday the eighth of October and that time we face the Rising Sun co-written by Eamon Little gets its world premiere at the London Film Festival next month with hopes of a general release then closer to home early next year. Uh, John Tuhi is sitting patiently waiting to play a, a second tune. But before we go into that, John, um, I'm terribly conscious of the number of people, number of times I've mentioned Leitrim and this, this area. You, you're an emigrant from Kilkenny. I am. I'm a Kilkenny man, but uh, my, my parents actually met in North Leitrim. They met in the village of Kilty Clogher, so without uh, North Leitrim, I wouldn't be here. Oh, so there I don't know if that's a good thing <laughs> or a bad thing. Um, what about the, the, the piping tradition in Kilkenny, the piping tradition in Leitrim? Are there parallels? Are there differences? <laughs> I suppose uh, there are two counties that... Uh, in more recent years have, uh, you know, there was a, a very fallow period, I suppose, for most of the, the 20th century. There was no real piping tradition in either county. Um, and there has been a real resurgence in the last even five to ten years, which is great. The yeah. Leitrim story is quite interesting in that respect, how it kind of the, the piping tradition went off to America, essentially. Absolutely, yeah. So Leitrim had some really famous players, like really amazing pipers uh, and tune composers in all through kind of 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. But I suppose, um, obviously, the famine affected many counties in Ireland, but what people don't realise is actually South Leitrim was one of the worst affected areas. So along with Connemara, mm. uh, where I currently live, like literally half the population, was over 50% of the population either died or emigrated within three years. So there was huge emigration. So weirdly, you ended up with a very disproportionate amount of Leitrim and Roscommon musicians in cities like Chicago and New York. So the famous music collector Francis O'Neill, uh, he had a whole load of informants that he collected music and tunes from. But if you look at his list, basically, there are loads and loads of musicians mm. from Leitrim and Roscommon. So you end up... With, and then I suppose my own particular interest is in really early sound recordings. And there's a huge proportion of these guys that were recorded in... We're talking kind of 1890s, early right. 1900s that were from Leitrim. Yeah, right. so Inter Interesting stuff indeed. You're going to play another tune for us? Yeah, I'll play maybe two jigs this time. So the first... From any of them from Leitrim, any of them from uh, The first uh, tune is Kilkenny. a Kilkenny tune. So it's a tune called The Canvas Town Rant uh, that I collected. Uh, I was interviewing this woman about her grandfather and she pulled out this old book of tunes. So it's a tune for a place called outside the village of Tullerone called Canvas Town. Uh, and then the second tune is quite a common tune called Pay the Reckoning. So Canvas Town Rant, Rant and Pay the the reckoning.
John Tui there with two tunes, The Canvas Town Rent and A Pay the Reckoning. Back with more from the Glen Centre in Leitrim after this break. And welcome back to the Glen Centre in County Leitrim. And with me now here in the Glen Centre are some writers, artists and theatre makers based here in the North West. Let's start with uh, Rebecca O'Connor and Will Govan of The Moth. Uh, you, of course, edited the and published the Moth Literary Magazine. You moved away from publishing then in, in the spring. But tell us a little bit about work is the course of the drinking classes, if you would, please, Rebecca. Yeah, so we're now producing this one man show about Oscar Wilde called Work is the Curse of the Drinking Classes, written by Neil Titley. Starring um, Will Govan, um, it, we've been on the road since March. Um, we continue to tour into the autumn. We're in Kildare next week, 28th of September, and then in Virginia and Calvin on the 30th of September. Um, but the moth hasn't disappeared now altogether. Will you come back to it? No, well, we, we, we still feel like we're the moth. So we're still um, running four prizes annually. Mm. So the Moth Nature Writing Prize closes on the 30th of September. That's judged by Kathleen Jamie, a Scottish poet. Um, the Moth Poetry Prize is still one of the biggest in the world for a single unpublished poem. That's judged by Hannah Sullivan this year and that closes in December. And Will, um, I have to say, you do have a bit of the look of Oscar Wilde off you. Did the, did the hair grow specially for no, this role I mean, or has that always been like that? Not, not unlike yourself, Sean. Sure, <laughs> there you um, go. <laughs> I did grow the hair. Um, he, was, uh, he was meant to be very boozy and overweight, so I'm working on that you know, throughout, the, throughout the tour. <laughs> Yeah, and, and um, difficult role to play, or what, what's, what's the challenge with Wilde? I guess he's incredibly funny, but you want to get to the man underneath that as well, don't you? I mean, I can't say I have. I mean, really delighted that it's been well received, but I, I've kind of fallen in love with him really over, uh, you know, having work, you know, working, on, working on the play, and one learns more about him every time, um, you know, one performs it. All right, and let's go to uh, Donald Connolly, who's, who's sitting beside you there as well, and visual artist Eva Martin, who have worked uh, together on some short film adaptations. We're back to the idea of adaptations, uh, Donald. This is your own written work. What kind of texts have you adopted, the, adapted for these films? These are short, short prose pieces that are probably going to be a book-length prose poem. Which each, they're the disjointed thoughts of a bewildered man. So each page is one of those disjointed thoughts. And then there's short verse poems that are sort of sardonic mm. and they're called splinters. And even I have made over the course of two years, three films, one of which is actually showing at the dock to, to this evening and one of which will be at, at, at adaptation tomorrow. And uh, is this these disjointed thoughts of a bewildered man? Is he a Leitrim man or is he a man from anywhere? Universal. He's a universal, well, well escaped that yes. one. Yeah. And, and Eva, in terms of what you do, I think in one of the cases of the adaptations of, uh, of, of Donald's work, we're talking about uh, animation. So maybe you talk about the visual aspect of it and where your work fits into that. Yeah, sure. So um, luckily I resonate really well with Donald's work, so it's always a pleasure and quite easy to animate them visually and add another layer to his work. Um, I work in an analogue sense, so I'm drawing hands one after the mm. other, very meticulous, but it's enjoyable, it's good. I mean, we've made three films now, so obviously I like it. <laughs> and working on that short film um, uh, genre, is there a desire, uh, Donald talking about working it up into a bigger prose poem, is there a desire to work on something longer, longer form? Our first piece was, was nine minutes long, which is long for a short poetry film. Um, mm. we've, our second two are one and two minutes long, so that's something I think we're going to work in in the future. Um, we could have probably split the longer one into 19 smaller pieces, but <laughs> we went we went hell for leather at the first one. So. All right. Anyway. Okay, well, the best of luck with, with all of those. And let's go to uh, Brendan Murray, the Artistic Director of the Glen Centre here in County Leitrim. And um, thank you, first of all, Brendan, for being so hospitable to us and having us here uh, this evening. Your autumn season uh, in the venue, what, what kind of things ha have you got in store for yeah, the people well, of the North West? Thank you, Sean, and your team for coming here. We're delighted to have you. This is uh, an area that's strong, as you've heard in traditional music. We have the Glen to Glen Piping Festival, which we started before the, the lockdown. So this is our second edition of it, and we hope to grow it over the years because of the tradition of piping in the area, like Neely Mulligan, of famous of the cobble, Cobblestone uh, Pub. Uh, his family are from here originally, with Pardick McGovern. We have John Toohey himself, who we've here with Emer Mayock. So there is a fantastic tradition of piping, and we run master classes with the sculpture centre across the road in pipe maintenance. Mick O'Brien will come down from the Nepebri Ilan who do it in we do it in conjunction with them. So here at the Glens we're all about collaboration. 
education and resourcing mm. artists. And the last, the 2016 um, uh, census, there were more artists living in Leitrim per capita than any other county. And that's really what we're about, thanks to the Arts Council's funding. I was going to ask you about that, the, you know, the aspect of, like, obviously we had Gary Lydon and Brian yeah. F. O'Byrne, who, not maybe exactly in Leitrim and not up here in, in, in Manahamon. Well, Gary's down in Leitrim yeah, Village. But yeah. in, in the region, we're talking about Unbelievable. huge numbers of people. How has that helped you in terms of programming stuff specifically for the venue here? The well, well, for example, we, we're bringing over a youth theatre from Melbourne. Uh, they're a professional youth theatre and they're going to work with with all the... We have six youth theatres in the county, which is phenomenal for, mm. for a county of its size. Uh, and they'll be workshopping and also with transition year students. So it's very much about engaging with, with youth as well. And that'll be over the next four days, over, over next week. But then we will we will be programming people like we have great Frankie Gavin coming with Catherine McHugh. Uh, you know, we, we, we also have like Seamus O'Rourke here's next week. Seamus is of this parish yeah. as well. His family are originally uh, Manor, Manor Hamilton. Uh, we run a winter warmer series, which we're starting, which will be one Right. Once every month, which will be come in, have a have a, a, a on a five o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. With we have a, a, a grand piano here, and there'll be Tiernan O'Rourke, Rosina Horn, who's here, who's who's originally based in France. Uh, and we will also have Manish Pingle, who's a fantastic Indian right. slide guitarist with Rupak Pandit on tabla. That is one to watch. Well, out for. A, if ever we have proof that um, the Glen Centre is truly international, there we have it. Brendan, thanks so much for that. Thanks, and Sean. Thanks to everyone here in the Glen centre this evening for, for the programme, the guests and that wonderful live audience from County Leitrim. We did a big rehearsal before going to air tonight that every time I said County Leitrim they had to make sure to give a round of applause. Don't do it there, please. Um, thanks to Brendan and all of the staff here at the Glens for their hosp hospitality and indeed the Arts Council for their support in putting together this Culture Night show. Tom Norton and Liam Mullen were in sound. Research for this evening's programme was by Amandine Passo-Divine. And tonight's programme was produced by a woman who I've worked with for the last four years, uh, Ms Sinead Gleeson. Um, You've heard a lot of talk recently about where talent... No, it's not Sinead Egan, I beg your pardon. Uh, you've heard a lot of talk recently about where talent resides in this organisation. Sinead Egan, as with so many of my colleagues, is living proof that talent resides right across the organisation. It is not confined to one person standing in front of a microphone. I, uh, Sinead is testament to that. Uh, it has been a privilege to work with you the past four years, Sinead. I hope it is not another four years before we get a chance to do it again. So we'll leave with, with the applause for tonight's programme, produced by Sinead Egan. <laughs>